Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Uh, Ezra chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. I I say that every week, and I really mean it, because I want you to to see what I'm talking from. I'm not making stuff up. Uh, Throughout the week, uh, you are getting told a lot of different narratives through whatever uh, news source you have and through social media and through the people who talk to you. Everybody's got a narrative of the way things are and the way things ought to be and what is sin and what is repentance. And uh, they don't use those words, but they'll tell you when you're wrong and they'll tell you what you ought to do. Everybody lives in a narrative. But as Christians, we come together every Sunday, and I pray more so than just Sunday, we constantly should be reminded of the narrative, the narrative that God says is true. And that's why we preach book by book, verse by verse through the Bible, because I'm not trying to give you my spin or my narrative. So when we come to verses like this or we come to sections like this that maybe are a little hard to understand, you might think, well, can we just skip it and move on to something a little bit more interesting? And I'll just tell you, to be honest, as a pastor, sometimes I wish we could do that. But I do not want to give you my narrative. I want to give you God's narrative. And so if you do have your Bibles, I hope that you are looking at them, uh, whether it's a real Bible or a Bible on your phone. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on your phone, you can use our big phone Bible that's up there behind me. But I do hope that you are paying attention and listening to the words of God and not just taking what I say is true because I could be wrong. Uh, Believe it or not, I I sometimes make mistakes. And so I I want us all to be in God's word together. Now, today's text is one of those texts where I wish we all had a better preacher. Uh, I wish I could be sitting down there and somebody else could do this because it's one of those things where I look at it all week and I I know it's it's so impactful and it's so important. And then you guys give me about 30 minutes before you fall asleep. And I've got to try to squeeze it all in there. And I've always been jealous of preachers who can tie a nice little neat bow on things and make it all look really pretty and Uh, As we come into this text, we're talking about politics, which means I'm probably going to offend some people. And if I do my job, I should probably offend all of you because that's what Jesus did. He wasn't, you know, democratic. He wasn't liberal. He also wasn't conservative. Jesus was Jesus. He he didn't come to, you know, pick a side. He came to take over all the sides. He is the king and he's not going to share the throne with the GOP or the DNC. And so if I do my job right, some of you are going to be a little bit offended by what I say. And yet it is so important for the church. Because we live in a time in which we are divided by politics more so than ever before. And and that's not just true in the world. That's true in God's body. Uh, I've seen churches split. I've seen churches have massive arguments over the last two years because of politics. Some of my pastor friends, uh, some of the people who planted churches the same time I did are no longer in existence And they say, you know, the hardest part wasn't the pandemic. The hardest part was the way people viewed the pandemic. The hardest part was how everybody saw their political view as the right view. And we could not love each other. We could not forgive each other. We could not overcome these things. It is really important. And our time is not really a lot different than the time of Jesus. When Jesus showed up about 500 years after Ezra was written, there was a lot of political disagreement amongst God's people. God's people were tired. Because as we see here in Ezra and as we see in all of the Bible, God's ultimate goal is that his kingdom would come to bear on earth. And the Jewish people were awaiting a Messiah who would come and take over the Roman Empire and rule and to lead over the entire world. And yet for the Jewish people now for a lot of years, some 500 to 600 years, they had not been an independent empire. Other empires came in. It was the Babylonians and then it was the Assyrians and then it was the Persians. And you get to Jesus time and it's the Romans. And they begin to wonder, is God going to keep his promise? Or are we always going to be under the thumb? Are we always going to be slaves? Are we always going to be property of other kingdoms? 
And so there was these different views of how God's kingdom was to come to view. There was two extreme views that I think a lot of us fall into. Uh, there was the Essenes, and the Essenes basically said, you know what, this world's going to hell, and we're not going to hell with it. And so what they did is they separated themselves. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's in our time, you know, it'd be the people who homeschool their kids. They, they move out to a far place away. They're going to grow their own food. They're going to do their own things, uh, and they're not going to rely on the world for anything, and they're not going to engage in the world in any way. They don't care about the world. The best they'll do is pray for the world, but you know what? We tried. It's too far gone. There's no way we can help it. And maybe that's some of you. You would say, I'm, I probably lean towards the Essene side. And uh, you know, for good reason, because sometimes you look at the world and you think, oh, the world's really messed up. And then on the other side was the zealots. And the zealots said, you know what? We're going to fight power with power. We're going to grab our swords and we're going to go. And we're going to take over the Roman Empire. We're tired of being uh, kicked down and put down. And so we're going to find somebody who will lead us. We're going to build our own army and we're going to take over the system that is currently in place. And in our time, we have our own form of zealots, you know, those who would say, really, what we need, what we need to bring God's kingdom to bear is uh, through the political system. We, We need more senators who are Christians. We need more congressmen who are Christians. If we had a president who was a Christian, who cared about Christian values, then God's kingdom might just then come to bear. And maybe that's some of you. You think, you know, the problem is, is we need all of our laws to align with the biblical laws. And what we what we really need is, is we need a president who will stand up for us and This sometimes leads to our own zealots overlooking certain things about certain presidential candidates uh, or certain Senate candidates or congregational candidates. And we say, you know what? Yeah, they've got all their faults, but let's just ignore those because as long as we have the right end, the means don't matter all that much. Some of you may say, yeah, I I kind of agree with what you're saying there. I, I would probably be a zealot. The problem with both views, and at certain times in my life, I have held both views, is that Jesus holds neither view. Jesus was not an Essene separating himself from everybody else. Uh, In fact, Jesus could have avoided a lot of political trouble, but he walked right into it. He went right into Jerusalem and he was killed by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire did not care about his religious teachings. They were concerned that he called himself king. They were concerned that he was upheaving the Roman system of government. He was causing riots and problems. Jesus was not afraid to speak truth to power. Jesus did not see that power was beyond repair. No, he came in with his own kingdom. And it made a lot of people upset. But Jesus was also not a zealot. He didn't want to take over by force. In fact, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a stallion. And the people try to make Jesus a king, which we sometimes do today, do we not? You know, we want Jesus to be the king of the current system we have. And Jesus said, I am not a king like that. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, then I would fight power with power. I would come with swords and I would come with men. I would roll in the tanks and I would destroy everything. But that's not my kingdom. In fact, when uh, he's arrested by the the Romans, I love Peter. He's my favorite uh, disciple because he reminds me of myself a lot. When they come to arrest Jesus, Peter's like, yes, now's the time we fight. And so he pulls out his sword. He cuts off the ear of this guy, the Roman uh, soldier who's coming up to Jesus. And Jesus is like, Peter, no, that's not what we're doing here. He picks up the ear and puts his ear back in place on the Roman soldier, which, by the way, if I'm the Roman soldier and he picks up my ear and puts it back in place, I think I'm switching teams, you know, I don't know about you guys, but that's kind of freaky. And Jesus goes to the cross and he dies at the hands of the Roman Empire. Why? Because his kingdom is not like this kingdom. And so Jesus is more political than us. And yet he's also less political than us. It's this weird kind of third way that as Christians, we all must kind of try to balance. And we're not perfect at it. We're not good at it. Usually the church has a history of being pretty bad at it. But we try our best by the grace of God to toe that middle line. And as we come to Ezra 6, we see a great example of what this actually looks like. 
What does it look like to be people who are not zealots, but also are not Essenes, who have the, the right amount of separate from the world, but not segregation from the world, who, who come to transform the world, to see God's kingdom come to bear, to see the hungry fed, to see the outcasts cared for? I want these things to be true, but how do we see it happen? And the answer is this kind of third way we see in Ezra chapter 6. So today, if you're more on the uh, zealot side, I'll probably... Uh, see, I made my, my grandmother-in-law so mad she's leaving already. <laughs> uh, if you're more on the zealot side, it'll sound like I'm attacking your view today. Just wait till next week. I'm an equal opportunity offender. Uh, we'll talk more about the Essene side of things next week. I just simply will run out of time. I want to talk about the role of the government and our role as a church in the government today. And if you're the list type of person, you like lists, you like when I tell you one, two, three, four, five, I'm gonna give you eight things to kind of be cautious about or to think about when we think about the church and the government or the church in politics. And uh, then I'm going to give you three things that makes Jesus the best king and our only true hope for lasting change. But let me pray for us and then we will jump in. Father, as we come to your word, uh, I ask for wisdom. Uh, Lord, I, I ask that you would give me the words to say. And Lord, I pray that you'd give my listeners the ears to hear what you want to say to us. Jesus, we, we want to see you be the king. And Lord, we, we want to see your kingdom come to bear on this earth. And yet, Lord, we're not always sure how that is supposed to happen. And yet your word provides a clear pathway for that. God, I do pray for our leaders. I pray for our president. I pray for our senators and our congressmen, just as you've called us to pray. God, I pray for those who are in any sort of authority position. And Lord, yet I also know that all those who are in authority are your kings. They're your leaders. You're the ultimate one. You're the unchanging one. And so, God, let me not look to them for my security. Let me not look to them to put my faith in them. But let me look to you, the one true king. Jesus, I love you and I praise you. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 1, uh, King Darius gave the order. Now, what is this order? Well, if you remember uh, chapter 4, the uh, Israelites had returned to Jerusalem. They had two goals, to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. And uh, they began the rebuilding of the temple. uh, And they laid the foundation, they laid the altar, and then they had a big party. They celebrated what God did. But their voices carried so far that the enemies heard. Uh, And the enemies did not want them to begin to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city because they kind of liked it being their own city. And so they came and they attempted to stop the Israelites. And they do. Uh, They reach out to the new king, King Darius, who did not know much about King Cyrus's previous command to allow the Jews to go rebuild their temple. And they say, look in the records and you'll find that these Jewish people are terrible people. They're going to rebel. They're going to cause problems. You need to stop their building. And Darius looks in his archives and he's like, oh, sure enough, they're terrible people. And uh, so he says, I command you to stop building the temple. They came and they forced the Jews to stop building. Uh, And then the Jewish people are like, well, we tried our best. And they wait 16 years. They do nothing. They focus on their own houses, their own priorities. And then the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah pop up. And they say, you know what? This is not right. It's been 16 years and you guys are worried about your own houses and we need to be worried about God's house. And so they command God's people to begin to rebuild the temple. And then the rebuilding begins. But... The, the, the same people, Tatanai is the big bad guy. Uh, he's the governor of this region. And he says, hey, wait a minute. I thought I told you guys to stop building. I thought I said this. And, and we have the, the command of the big king, the king of the entire empire. And he's saying you guys have to stop also. And the Jewish people basically say, you know what? We're ignoring you. We're going to keep working. But what we want you to do is to reach out to the king and tell him that somewhere in his archive should be this kind of decree from King Cyrus saying we are allowed to go do this. And so Darius 
When he gets this, he says, okay, I'll look. And he begins to look. And he searched first in the library of Babylon in the archives, but it wasn't there. Verse 2, it says, but it was in the fortress of Ecabatana in the providence of Media. I, I like how Liz said Medea. I think I'll stick with that. Medea is awesome. It's a classic movie. Uh, not a very godly movie, but yeah. Uh, that a scroll was found with this record written on it. Uh, so the kings were, were so rich and the empire was so big, he actually had two homes. Uh, he would live in Babylon during the winter, and then uh, he would live in what would be kind of modern-day Iraq in the, in the winter so that he could keep an eye on all sides of his kingdom. Well, Cyrus had filed the, the kind of command in the second home, and so King Darius couldn't find it in his first home, but then he went to his second home, and he was like, oh, wow, there it is. Uh, and he finds this command that Cyrus had initially given about the Jews being able to go back. So that's what we see here in verses 3 through 6. It says... In the first year of King Cyrus, he issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt as a place of offering sacrifices. Let its original foundations be retained, its height to be 90 feet, and its width to be 90 feet, with three layers of cut stones, one with timber. The cost is to be paid by the royal treasury. We're going to send them and we're going to pay for it. The gold and silver articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and carried them to Babylon must also be returned. They were to be brought to the temple in Jerusalem where they belong and put them into the house of God. So then Darius says, okay, I got it. Verse 6, therefore, you must stay away from that place, Tatanai, governor of the region of the west of the Euphrates River, Sheshabar, Bozani, and your colleagues and the officials in the region. Leave the construction of the house of God alone. Let the governor and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its original site. So as we come to the list, here's the first thing that we need to understand, and that is all leaders are God's leaders. All leaders are God's leaders. Notice it mentions several different leaders there, and yet what we know is that God is working through and in all of them. So in 2016, I heard a lot of people say this to me. They said, Donald Trump is God's chosen man. They said that to me at the time, and you know what? They were right. You know how I know they were right? Because he became the president of the United States. In 2020, people said to me, you know, Blake, I think Joe Biden is God's chosen man. You know, who, the people who said that, guess what? They were right. You know how I know they were right? Because they were in authority. Every single person who has any authority in this world was given that authority by God. So that's why I kind of laugh when people say this is God's chosen man. You don't know that until after the leader is leading because all authority is from God. Now, that's not just me saying that before anybody gets angry and starts throwing stuff at me. Uh, as we look in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, it says, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. He changes. Who changes? He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Or Jesus, even when He's on trial, and He stands before Pilate, who's the leader, and Pilate's trying to ask him questions. Pilate doesn't want to crucify him. And he's, he's like, Jesus, you know that I have the power to crucify you or to not crucify you. And Jesus was sitting there not answering his questions. And he says, don't you know I have authority over you? Verse 11, Jesus' response is this. You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over has the greater sin. Jesus looks at him and he says... <laughs> You just think you have authority. Any authority you have was given to you from my father. Or Proverbs 21, 1, 
in case you don't believe me yet, I'll keep proving my work to you. Proverbs 21.1 says, A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. All kings, all leaders, are God's kings and God's leaders. God was the one who raised up the spirit of Cyrus, yes, to send the Jewish people home to begin to rebuild their temple. But God was also the one who raised up the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar to come in and destroy the temple and destroy the city and take the Israelites into slavery. Your favorite president was in office because God wanted him to be there. Your least favorite president was in office because God wanted him to be there. All leaders, all kings are God's leaders and God's kings. Which leads me to number two on my list. Sometimes God allows bad leaders. You know, I see people sometimes, and I myself have come to conclusions sometimes where I'm like, what is God doing? You know, why in the world are things going the way they're going? Because it seems like it's the opposite of what God would want. Why would God allow these things to happen? And what we find out throughout Scripture is God allows bad kings for reasons we can't understand in the moment. God is working out a plan that you and I don't see. We're we're too close to it. We can't see it while we're in it. The the way to see God's plan is not looking at 10 years or 20 years. The way to look at God's plan is look at 100 or 200 years. You know, like you could say the world is a lot worse than it was in 1980 or pick whatever year you think was the golden year. And you might be right. But what I can also tell you is that the world has gotten a lot better if we zoom out a little bit. Would you rather live in 2021 or would you rather live in the year 1021? I don't know about you, but I kind of like living in 2021, 2022. (laughs) Now the years change faster and faster. But if you lived in 1021, there was no such thing as human rights. There was no such thing as women's rights. Uh, There was uh, slavery was everywhere. They had slavery like we had cars. If you got sick, you died. I mean, you just, a common cold could kill you easily. You fast forward and look at what God is doing. He's moving the world in a direction that is positive. His kingdom is coming to bear, but it doesn't look like it always. And God will use bad leaders to do things we can't understand. You know, for instance, we often think that persecution is a really bad thing. And it is bad for those of us who have to undergo it. Um, But there's also a problem if you have too much blessing. And what we would consider blessing. We believe everything that comes from the hand of God is blessing. Both the, the, the things that the world would say bad and the things that the world would say good. But the kind of tangible blessing that everybody would say is blessing. Like we have right now. We're meeting here today. I have no fear of the cops coming in and arresting me. Uh, we, we have plenty of money. We, we are very, very blessed in the way that the world would say we are blessed. But there can be a problem with that. And that can be that we can become prideful. And it can, if it's a benefit to be a Christian, then what you can happen is you have a whole bunch of people who claim to be Christians because it benefits them to be Christians. You, know, you go to a place like Portland, which you know, some of you might think that, that's got to be what hell looks like. Uh, I don't know. I've been there, and it was, it was pretty rough. And in a place like Portland, some of the best churches I know exist there. You know why? Because they aren't trying to please anybody. You don't go to a place like Portland or Seattle or some place where it's more secular than it is here and claim to be a Christian because you're trying to get something. If you claim to be a Christian, you're likely to get spit on. You're likely to be called ignorant. You're likely to be called small-minded. Those things are true there. And so you know what that tells me? Is that those who are calling themselves Christians are not doing so to gain anything. They're calling themselves Christians because they truly love Jesus and they truly believe in Jesus. You see, this is what God does from time to time. He, He allows us to undergo persecution because it's a, it's a great shaking. It shakes out those who are not in it for the right reasons. And it shakes out in our own hearts those things that are in there that are idols to us. And we have to ask ourselves, am I really following King Jesus because I love King Jesus? Or am I following King Jesus because of what he provides for me? 
God is in charge of whoever is king. And God sometimes allows bad kings. Now, number three, and this all goes together, is that we do trust that God will work all things out for good. It is very ironic as we look at verse six and seven, uh, that Tatanai, the guy who wanted to stop God from doing this through his people, is uh, now having to listen to King Darius, and he's having to be the one who carries out the commands to allow them to build. And we're going to see here in just a minute, he, in fact, has to take the money from his treasuries and pay for it. It's this great reversal of things. What this king thought was going to happen did not happen. What this leader thought was going to happen did not happen because God is ultimately in charge. And so there have been evil tyrants that have lived. Evil, evil tyrants. And yet, isn't it interesting that always, 100% of the time, on the other side of it, the good wins. Now, I I love World War II. I love hearing about it a lot and and thinking about it. And it's always just so interesting to me uh, how close things were to being really bad. I mean, really, really bad. When you think about just a few things that could have went a little bit different, if Hitler and Stalin would have got their way, the world would look quite a bit different. And yet it didn't. And uh, I was uh, listening to this interesting uh, video on YouTube. Uh, it was like one of the only privately recorded conversations of Hitler. Uh, this guy was very brave. He didn't know he was being recorded. And Hitler was talking about the problems in the war. This is kind of towards the end of it. And uh, Hitler kind of surmised that the, the big reason why they lost was nothing to do with the armies that they were fighting, but everything to do with the weather. Uh, they had uh, invaded Russia, and he thought they could take over Russia pretty quickly. Uh, But it didn't happen that way because the winter came quicker, and it was a lot harder than what he thought it was going to be. And so the the fighting took longer. The men were really spread thin because they were fighting on both fronts, and ultimately that is what cost them the war. Now, you could look at that and say that's a coincidence. You could also look at that and say that I know the one who's in charge of the weather. (laughs) I, I know the one who's ultimately sovereign over things. I know the one who's on the throne, not concerned about the things we often concern ourselves with because he is the king of everything. One of the great ironies also of World War II is the Soviet Union, who uh, is, was the, the, the biggest kind of propagator of atheism. You know, they, they thought Christianity, anybody who believed anything superstitious was really dumb. And they really believed that their kind of communist Marxist uh, atheism was the brand that the world was going to embrace. You know, once they see how smart we are, then everybody will get on board. And in a wonderful irony, the Soviet Union fell on December 25th, 1991. As Christians everywhere celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ, the Soviet Union crumbled. You see, I could also look at that as a coincidence, or I could say this. God is in control. God is ultimately working all things out to good. You say, Blake, how do you know that? Well, because of what we're about to celebrate in April. The tomb is empty. (laughs) Jesus was killed on a cross, but he's not there anymore. We can find the tomb of every other religious leader, but we cannot find the tomb of Jesus. And it's not because he didn't exist. It's because he's not there. He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. Now, look with me at verses 8 through 10. We're going to see number four on the list. Uh, Verses 8 through 10 says, I hereby issue a decree concerning what you are to do so that the elders of the Jews can rebuild the house of God. The cost is to be paid in full to these men out of the royal revenues from the taxes of the region west of the Euphrates. Now, it keeps mentioning that. Anytime you're reading the Old Testament and the author keeps mentioning something, it's because he wants to catch your attention. He's trying to tell us something. And he keeps saying west of the Euphrates. That's where Tatnai is governor. And so what is Tatnai going to have to do? He's going to have to pay for this. Verse 9. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, and yams, and lambs, 
I threw in the ams. Uh, Make sure you guys are paying attention. For burnt offerings to the God of the heavens, or wheat, salt, wine, and oil, as requested by the priest in Jerusalem, let it be given to them every day without fail. I think it is interesting also that Darius is very generous with Tatanai's money. You know, this is what I want you to do, and I want you to do it out of your revenues, and I want you to make sure it's done every day. But you notice he's not losing a penny off of this deal. Then verse 10, he says, So that they can offer sacrifices of a pleasing aroma to God of the heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Now, you could look at that and think, look, he he cares about God, but he does not care about God. He was uh, very pluralistic. He wanted all the gods to pray for him because he thought, you know, maybe I could get some help from him. You know, it's kind of like people who will say, hey, Blake, when you're at church, pray for me, would you? You know, give the good Lord a good word for me, would you? And I want to say, like, uh, it doesn't work that way. You know, like, I can't just do it for you. He's not Buddha. You don't rub his belly and get luck. It's not the way God works. And yet here we go with this king doing it. And why? Well, because this king does not care about the people. He does not care about the God of Israel. He cares about what is practical for him. And he will serve God so far as God serves him. And he will serve God's people so far as God's people serve him. And this leads me to number four. And this is a really important one. I hope you internalize this, especially as we come into election season, coming into midterms, you're going to hear a lot of promises. And here's what I want you to know. Political leaders can't give you anything because they don't have anything. Political leaders can't give you anything because they don't have anything. Here's what I mean by that. Whenever you hear promises of a political leader, we're going to rebuild this. We're going to do this. We're going to make sure this program exists. Do you know whose money will fund that building and that program? Your money. (laughs) Political leaders, uh, parties have nothing without their people. America needs Americans. It's not the other way around. Uh, the, The DNC needs Democrats. The GOP needs Republicans. This is the way it works because we are finite human beings. I have no money to give the entire world unless the entire world agrees to give me their money. We don't have anything. This is actually what Samuel warns when the Israelites want a king. When they say, we want a king like all the other nations, Sam, God through the prophet Samuel says, you better be careful. And here's why he says, you better be careful. This is 1 Samuel eight ten through 17. And let's see if Samuel's prophecy has come true. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Isn't it interesting as right now we're seeing a war play out where there's a a leader who has started a war in another country that he is in a safe little bunker while he sends other people's sons and other people's daughters out to fight the war for him. And this is the way it always works, is it not? There is no one to fight the war unless we fight the war for them. Verse 12, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. The political person that I like to listen to for news. And uh, he's, he always says, you know, 
they often want you to think they disagree. But on the things that matter most, actually, the leaders of both parties agree. And what matters most is that they stay in power. What matters most is that they get enriched off of us. And that is so true. And it's been true since Samuel prophesied this so long ago. They can't give you anything because they don't have anything to give you. Now, as we go to number five, I do want you to know that there is a role of government. I am not an anarchist. I'm not saying stop paying your taxes and forget the government. You know, uh, that's that's probably a good way to go to prison pretty quickly. Uh, That's not at all. And that's not even what the Bible says. The role of the government is is laid out pretty clearly by Paul in Romans 13. The role of the government is to uh, make sure wrongdoers, those who are evil, don't do very much evil. By the fear of punishment, by the fear of the law, it is supposed to hold back some of the evil that is done. And this is what the government is supposed to do. And we see it perfectly here in verses 11 uh, through 12 as we see uh, really a severe punishment for anybody who breaks this decree. Verse 11 says, I also issue a decree concerning any man who interferes with this directive. Let a beam be torn from his house and raised up. He will be impaled on it, and his house will be made into a garbage dump because of this offense. Whew, that's a, a little severe, right? You know, They're going to go to your house, they're going to rip a pillar out of your house, put it in the front yard, and impale you on it, and then they're going to destroy your home if you break these commands. Then it says, may the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who dares to harm or interfere with the house of the God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued the decree. Let it be carried out diligently. That's really severe. And so guess what? I bet a lot of people didn't go against this command because we know from history that Darius was not messing around. Uh, When he overtook places, they would often impel thousands of people at a time. This was very serious. And you guys have probably all experienced the fear of the law. And I'm glad for the law. I'm glad for government. Because if there's something that keeps murderers from murdering less, if there's something that keeps rapists from raping less, if there's something, some fear in these people that will stop them from doing the evil that they do, I'm glad for it. And you probably all experienced it also. I don't know how many of you have ever sped. If you lie to me, you'll tell me that you haven't. But we all have. Uh, you know, you're going 75 and a 55 or something. You're late somewhere. You've all probably experienced that feeling of seeing a cop over the hill and you're busted. It, what happens? Your throat goes to your stomach. You know, you might need to change your underwear. It, it's scary. And, uh, and, and then what do you do if the cop lets you off? You know, he, he flashes his lights at you and he lets you go. You go. And then you probably drive 65 miles an hour for the next 10 miles or so. Both hands on the wheel. You know, you're terrified. You're like, oh, God, thank you. So God, thank you so much for not allowing that to happen to me. But then guess what happens over a little bit of time? Well, eventually the fear subsides. And instead of doing what the law says, you begin to do what you want to do. But that's the role of the law to to make sure you don't always do what you want to do so that we have a society in which we can live. Now, with that said, number five, uh, that's the role of the government. And number six, in America, it is important that we play a role in the government. So I am not saying that if you have an aspiration to be in politics, you shouldn't be in politics. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying you shouldn't be a part of the Republican or the Democratic Party, irregardless of, of what you believe. I'm not saying that. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. We need to have a role in it. I have some friends who say, you know, Christians should never be politicians. They shouldn't be in the military. They shouldn't be police. And I just respectfully disagree with them because that sounds like a recipe for disaster. If we have no Holy Spirit filled people in any of these areas, the world's going to get very dark, very fast. I love what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, He's talking about why he uh, is a proponent of democracy. And uh, he says this, if I can find the quote. 
uh, I am a Democrat, and by that he doesn't mean like we do, Republican Democrat. He means like a proponent of democracy because I believe in the fall of man. I think most people are Democrats for the opposite reason. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind was so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. And that might be what you think, too. You know, we, we all are smart enough. We should all have a role in the government, and that's why it's good that we get to vote. C.S. Lewis says, I, I'm for it, but for the opposite reason. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. I find that they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost. <laughs> I love that. that, that honesty. Like, I can't even oversee some animals, much less a country. The real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were fit only to be slaves, and I do not contradict him. But I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. This is why we must play a role. <laughs> Because those who are in power will seek more power. And we can't trust anybody with power except for King Jesus. Now, number seven on my list of eight is be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. If you're going to have a role in the government, you're going to vote, you're going to play a role, and I hope that you do. You need to be careful what you ask for. Uh, because the same beam that they use to kill your enemies may be the beam that you find yourself on one day. The power that we give them is not always... Uh, going to last the same way it is. In fact, this is what the government is weak at. It cannot make lasting change. This is the difference between the government and Jesus. Jesus comes to make lasting change. Well, what is lasting change? Well, lasting change is change from the inside. I, I would love to live in a country where we don't need speed limit laws because everybody loves to go the speed limit. If you wanted to go the speed limit, you would go the speed limit. And this is what Jesus says. I've come to put the law in their hearts, but the government can't do that. They can only make external changes. And the government sees change from the top down instead of the down up, which is what Jesus sees. The exact opposite. He wants to start with us. And from us, the world begins to change. Government says, no, we need the right people in power, and then we'll force the people to change. That is not lasting change. Because you know how many bad kings or bad presidents it takes to unwind everything that any good president or good leader has done? Only one. one. Only one. You can have 27 kings who are righteous and good, and one king can destroy it all. It's not lasting change. And so that's why we ought to be careful what we ask for. Uh, this was taught to me by a mentor who had some political beliefs that were different from mine, and I didn't understand it. You know, it, was a, it was a time where there was a huge argument about the Ten Commandments being in courthouses, and uh, people were arguing that that should be law, that we put the Ten Commandments in the courthouses. And uh, people were, were talking about all sorts of religious freedom-type ideas and uh, there was a big movement, and there still is, about God being pulled out of things. You know, God's been pulled out of the school. And so th the idea was what we need is we need laws to put God back in the school. And you know, we need to make the Bible required reading. Or we need to do whatever it is that we need to do to put Christianity back into the schools and back into our world. And uh, my mentor said, you know what, I, I don't agree with this. And I thought, what? You know, what do you mean you don't agree with this? Why would we not want the Ten Commandments? Why would we not want the Bible taught? That's, that's what we need right now. And then a little bit later, uh, you know, at a certain different time, they were talking about Christians who were trying to stop a mosque from being built, a Muslim mosque from being built in one of these big cities. And I thought, surely he'll agree with me on this. And he said, no, I, I disagree with that. I think they should be able to build it. And I said, I got to ask you, because I don't understand this. I don't understand it at all. Why are you saying these things? And he said, because if you give them power right now, it'll be power for us. But one day it will not be power for us. He said, I've, I've been to countries ruled 
by Muslims where the women, and this is not all Muslims, but the Muslims that rule the countries tend to be this way, where women are not allowed to go out in public without their husband's permission. Where women are not allowed to show their face. Where women are treated like property, not like people. And he said, so if right now they can put the Ten Commandments in the courthouse and that's in law, what will happen is that one day they won't just take the Ten Commandments out of the law, they'll replace it with something else. And so whenever you're making a decision politically, you need to ask yourself, would I want this to be true if it turned on the Christian faith? If they're not allowing mosques to be built right now, could it be one day that they don't allow churches to gather one day? We must be careful because politics are always changing. In fact, this is a really biblical view. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he's telling us how to pray for leaders, says this. First of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of of the truth. And then verse 7 he says for this I was appointed a herald and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Isn't it interesting what Paul tells us to pray? Not that they would believe what we believe or force what we believe on others. He says, I pray that they would allow us to have a free and tranquil life. He says, I want there to be freedom so that I can preach the gospel because the gospel is what changes people. See, we don't win by outlawing all other ideas. We just really believe our idea is the best idea. And if you hear the gospel, you won't be able to believe anything else. If you truly hear it, if you truly believe in it, that is what will change the world. Be careful what you ask for. And then number eight, this is the last one. Politics without God become God. This is very important. If you do not have God first, then what will happen is your politics will become your God. Look at the end with me. Verses 13 to the end, it says, Then Tatani, governor of the region, west of the Euphrates River, Shetsabar Bozani, and their colleagues diligently carried out what King Darius had decreed. So the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Iddo. They finished the building according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and King Artaxerxes. I love that. The command of God and the decree of these three kings. You see what he's doing there? He's putting God first. He's saying these kings think that they're doing us a favor, but ultimately it's God that's in charge. And he names three kings. He names a king of the past, a king of now, and he also names a king that will come about 100 years from now. Not, not quite 100 years, but in the future from now. What's he saying with that? Kings come and go, but God always stays. God is who we look to for truth. God is who we look to to put our faith in. And if that puts us at odds with our political party of choice, then so be it. I'm on Jesus' team. I'm not on the Republican team. I'm on Jesus' team. I'm not on the Democrat team. That There will be times, if you are following Jesus, where you will completely disagree with those political leaders that you like. And if you don't, it might be because you're placing your faith in them. It might be because you're trusting them as the source of truth. Because Jesus does not take sides. He comes to overtake. And He will always, always push on your political beliefs. And if he's not, it might be because you're not looking to Jesus for those political beliefs. Verse 15. This house was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. You know who the most active people are politically by statistics? It's atheists. Atheists are the most politically active. Now, why is that? 
Because every one of us wants a God. Every one of us wants something outside or bigger than us that can move things in a positive direction. And we all want something to be a part of. We all need God whether or not we believe in Him. And when you have no God, what happens is your politics become God. And if you just seek for politics, you'll lose God and your politics. But if you put God first, then change actually begins to happen. One more C.S. Lewis quote. And Zach, you can go ahead and come up. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this. Nothing is more likely to destroy a species or a nation than a determination to survive at all costs. Those who care for something else more than civilization are the only people by whom civilization is at all likely to be preserved. The, those who want heaven most have served earth best. Read that again. Those who want heaven most have served earth best. Those who love man less than God do most for man. So for us to be the kind of people that actually make a difference, we have to love God more than we love our political parties. We have to love God more than we love our political leaders. We have to love God more than we love our ideologies that we hold so dear. Because if we have a truth that we're all seeking, if we have an authority over us, and that authority is good, and I believe he is, then we will fight for that which is good. And our world will be a better place for it. As I close, I want to give you just three ways that we know that Jesus is the better, cha- better king and why you should put your faith in him and not political parties. Number one, Jesus doesn't change. These kings are constantly changing their opinions. They're losing things in their multiple homes. They don't even know what's going on half the time. And yet King Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if you believe that, that gives you great confidence. Number two, Jesus is different in the fact that he doesn't punish people for their sins. He dies for them. What did Darius do? He said, if you sin, if you miss the mark, if you don't follow my law, I will impel you. This kind of impalement is actually the beginning of what we know as crucifixion. And isn't it interesting that one day, about 500 years from this, the Jewish Messiah would be impaled on a cross, held up because of our sins. See, most kings, when we sin, we're punished. But our King Jesus came and he said, yes, you deserve this punishment. But I will die for it. I will make my house a garbage dump. I will be the one impelled for you. Friends, there is no king like this of this world. The kings will send you out to war before they go. Our king says, no, I'm going to go first. And then number three, and this is a big one. Jesus has nothing to gain and gives everything. Remember what I told you about the kings of this world? They can't give you anything because they don't have anything. Jesus has everything. Acts Uh, Chapter 17, verse 25 says, Neither is he, God, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Our God stepped off his throne in the heavens, stepped away from owning and authority over everything, to walk on this earth, to take on flesh. Just as King Herod in Jesus' time was this huge political power building everything, he had a net worth of over $100 billion in today's money. The true king of the world came, and he was born in a manger as a poor Jewish boy. He worked a blue-collar job like many of you work, and he lived 33 years without saying much or doing much. He never wrote a political manifesto. Jesus never, in fact, wrote down a word of his own. It was only his followers who wrote down his words later. And yet this king came to die on a cross to give us everything. He is cursed so that we might be blessed. He is forsaken so that we might be chosen. And he was made poor so that we might be made rich in spirit. 
This is our king. And that's the king I would encourage you to place your trust in, friends. Father, these are hard words. They always have been. These are the kind of words that push people. And God, I pray that as your spirit pushes us or convicts us of areas in our own life, that we would not rebel, but that we would repent. That we would submit to your kingship. God, you will not force anybody to follow you, but you openly allow them to through Jesus. Father, we love you. And we pray that we can obey you. Friends, with your eyes closed and head bowed, take about 20 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father, through the power of your spirit, I pray that you'd give us the courage to obey King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.